Hey, this is Mark A. Altman. And if you're a fan of this podcast, you already know the 50-year mission is definitive oral history of Star Trek. And Secrets of the Force will tell you everything you want to know about the history of Star Wars. But what you probably don't know is Ed Gross and I have a new book coming out this July. They shouldn't have killed this dog. The complete uncensored ass-kicking oral history of John Wick, Gun Fu, and the new age of action. Coming from St. Martin's in hardcover, digital, and audio. You can order it today. Welcome back to the 430 Movie. We got our expert programmers here to curate Fantasy Theme Weeks of classic films. From 1998, film directed by Steven Soderbergh called Out of Sight. Yes! Soderbergh directs it with such a sort of confident, self-assured style. Lex Luthor in Superman. What is it about Gene Hackman that... uh... His performance, it's off the charts, but still in reality. Fiendishly gifted. 1981, Sam Raimi Opus, The Evil Dead. Oh, yes, fine choice. Sam Raimi invented entirely new ways to get shots that should not have been possible with the amount of money that he did not have. Charade. Oh, Directed by Stanley Donnan. It's a textbook screenplay. It's just effortless, and there's not a wrong note in this movie. Can't say enough great things about it. We'll be back next Friday with an all-new episode of the 430 Movie, wherever you listen to podcasts. Join us now. For the 430 Movie. The 430 Movie Podcast is available weekly wherever you listen to podcasts and on the free Electric Now app. Download it today. Hello and welcome to Best Movies Never Made, the podcast where we talk about interesting and infamous movies that never made it to or through production. Most of the time, the movies you're trying to make don't get made. Like, four of them may happen, one of them may happen, none of them may yeah. happen, and I'll be attached to three more things by end of summer. Turn the script into something resembling like Unforgiven with Conan. Yeah. Suddenly the rights expired and the whole thing just like went away Ow. overnight. New episodes will be available every other Monday. We won't see you at the movies. Best Movies Never Made, as featured in Entertainment Weekly, is available wherever you listen to podcasts and on the free Electric Now app. Hey, this is Mark A. Altman. And this is Darren Dockerman. And we are the Inglorious Trexperts. There are some moments that haunt us all our lives. Moments upon which history turns. Well, hello, my friend. What is this? What have you done? Welcome to the road not taken. Do you have any idea what's happening here? Reality has been broken. There is a divergence. I know someone who could help us understand the change in time. I'm gonna need some tea. Earl Grey, piping hot. Hello, Guinan. Your answers are not in the stars, and they never have been. Earth 2024. A single change is vastly more dangerous than you realize. None of our tomorrows are guaranteed. You're gonna have 
to let go. We're stronger together. You must bring us home. This is a very bumpy century. But uh, I think I'm getting the hang of it. I believe you have one final frontier yet to come. And today, I'm really excited. We got a, a special guest. Uh, he truly the next generation. Why do I say that? Because this this is a this is is such an aspirational figure for a lot of you. I think in this world of Star Trek, to a guy who who started um, on Star Trek Voyager, working as Brandon Bragg as assistant. No. Uh, and, it goes back even further than that. Oh wow! See, I I don't even have my facts You're wrong. Went on to be a showrunner on uh, shows like uh, 12 Monkeys, which is a great story in itself. Um, he also was a showrunner on MacGyver, the reboot, and uh, worked on a bunch of other shows and just finished uh, work on uh, season two and the recently completed season three, which is now in post-production of Star Trek Picard. And of course, I'm talking about Terry Metallis. So welcome, Terry. Thank you for having me. Yeah, no, it, look, it's such an interesting story. Now, you just said, no, the story goes back before Voyager. Yeah, you know, and well, it's not so much before Voyager. Uh, so I I went to Emerson College, which was uh, television and film school. And they did this great thing where in your last year, you could be part of this L.A. program because Emerson's in Boston. Yep. But they had like facilities here in L.A. and you could intern somewhere. Um, you know, work for free, but they would give you college credit for it. Um, and I, I sent like 50 letters to Star Trek because I just wanted to be on Star. I just wanted to be in that world. And I just could not find an internship. And then finally, one day I got this sort of desperate call. They're like, well, you'll come and work for free in post-production. I'm like, yes, absolutely. Just get me in the door. Um, and before I knew it, I was on the Paramount lot working in Star Trek post where it was, uh, Voyager and Deep Space Nine, and uh, they were just starting uh, Insurrection. They were just getting a, a Insurrection underway. Um, and then from there, uh, I, I, I got a big promotion to production assistant where I was, be, I was paid $8 an hour. <laughs> nice. um, but it was one of the most extraordinary jobs I've ever had because at that time, one, it was on the Paramount lot. Uh, two, uh, you had this bike and you could be part, you just you, you rode around the lot, handing out call sheets and paperwork. You're part of every department, you know, and the, in the department actually that sort of became my home that brought me in was Mike and Denise Akuta's art department um, with John Eaves and uh, Jim Vanover and Doug Drexler and Rick Sternbach. They, they just sort of welcomed me. And it was such an amazing place to hang out because if you're a Star Trek nerd like me, they're making the ships. They're making the graphics. They're making all this this, ama this amazing stuff. Um, and then at that time, you know, you you had if you were a Star Trek fan, you know, I I uh, like I used to drive when Patrick Stewart around in. Someone Gulf. has a ring. That was a, a, I that love that. The ring uh, is the greatest thing ever. By the way, total aside, it, it is. Except when there's wildlife out in your front yard, and you're like, oh, okay. no, that's a bear. Okay, we got to be good. Um, <laughs> So uh, anyway, so I got to be a part of, I was like part of Jerry Ryan's first year. So I was like kind of 
for a nerd and a fan, this was pretty, it was an incredible place to be. Yeah. And, you know, it's so interesting because you mentioned you started post and a lot of people think, oh, that doesn't sound very exciting. But you're the very, the mo- probably the most important things you'll learn as a showrunner happen in post. Because, yeah. you know, as we all know, editing is the final rewrite. But also, you were there during an era where it was going through a monumental evolution in terms of visual effects, in terms of uh, non-linear editing, in terms of, you know, the way that things were, were being posted and the move from film to digital. And, you know, uh, so it just must have, I would think that would have been very interesting for you and probably very instructive. It, it was, I, I, it was a lot of tapes. It was tapes, 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 t- like just you, all you did was deliver VHS tapes and three quarter tapes. Uh, um, so many, uh, that, that was, so it was just right before digital digital started to happen right when I became a, when an, an actual PA, um, and then I became, uh, an assistant. First I was an assistant for, to Brian Fuller. Um, and then a couple of other, uh, James Kahn. Um, and then eventually I was, uh, I was Brandon's assistant for a very long time, which he's talked about, I think, on this very podcast, I believe. Yes, <laughs> yes, 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 he has. <laughs> and you deserve a medal for working for Brandon for that long. <laughs> oh, no, no. It's, it's, fun, it's fun that you mentioned hanging out in the art department, because earlier than that, I think it was uh, just as uh, Deep Space Nine was starting, I was working on Adam's Family 2, and I would spend time uh, you know, at lunch and, and at, thereafter going up to uh, see the uh, folks up above the mill. Yeah, above the mill. Although the, in the, the art department. Yeah. And it was so much fun. And I had known them a little bit previously. But what a great just place to hang out and talk about stuff and enjoy the environs of Star Trek as they were meant to be. And it was just so great. And I'm I'm glad you had that experience. And, and, and nobody loves Star Trek more than the Yakutas, you know, they are. are I, I do. I do. But they I would agree that the Yakutas and Darren probably love Star Trek more than anyone. Right. Yeah. <laughs> Which is why when, when, um, when I had any kind of power in uh, season two, the first thing when we were hiring a new, with Dave Blast to be our new production. Yeah. And I was like, we, we've got to, We've got to get Star Trek back in here. We got we we need to get the Akutas. We need to get everyone. You know, I think they had maybe had John Eves occasionally do some illustrations, but it was like let's get everybody Drexler. Let's get them all back. Yeah, no, uh, it was great because I, I was on season one, and uh, they, and luckily I'd worked with Dave Blast before uh, on another show. So when he got it, I went, "Holy cow, that's great!" So yeah, I got to work a little bit on two and three. But uh, you it was did the chairs, and you didn't. Didn't you do I, the captain? I, I did an early version of the chairs, and yeah. uh, and uh, a couple of layouts and various things. I, I was all over the place. <laughs> it was so nice to see that almost those dominoes fall because all of a sudden you saw people like uh, Drexler and the Akutas and and Jeffrey Mandel, and they're all talking yeah. about how they were working on Star Trek again. And you could sense, you know, the palpable enthusiasm they had. And this is probably the only franchise. Where the art department has, you know, a fandom that's probably as big as, you know, the actors, and uh, it was really exciting to see the response and that people were responding. You know, it was like they were coming home, you know, and, yeah. and you knew things were in good hands. So you mentioned when you were going to Emerson, I, and I always think of that line in Spinal Tap. You know, Boston, not a very big college town. Uh, greatest place to go to college <laughs> ever is Boston. I, I yeah. went to school in Boston too, and um, I, I would, I would. So 
tell us about how you first fell in love with Trek. You were a next generation baby, right? I mean, you, that was your, your Oh no, jam. it was original series was, was, so, I mean, I grew up, uh, Sundays, uh, Sunday afternoon on the couch with my dad. I mean, as young as eight watching the original series, but I would say my first like falling in love was, uh, Star Trek two, three, four, uh, you know what? I'll throw five in there. Six. Good for you. It, you know, uh, it, like those, you know, that was a, that was an event. We would go to the movies to find out the next chapter of Captain Kirk. Um, and it's funny because we, you know, we talked a little bit about Star Trek three. It was actually Star Trek three where I remember vividly the enterprise pulling up the space dock and the Excelsior and all those things and feeling like the majesty of Starfleet and just with today's ILM visual effects. And it left such an impression on me so much so that you'll see a lot of space dock in season three of Picard. There's your exclusive, <laughs> but so, but it felt like, I, I, it felt like a fleet. It felt like the Navy. I, I, I loved so much. And again, that goes back to the original series and the, all that stuff, which I made sure in season three is just everywhere. But, um, it, that was really um, the the formative beginnings of serialized storytelling for me because those are real. Star Trek two, three, and four are trilogy and, and a yeah. great trilogy in my in my humble opinion. Um, it would six being a really great cap, I think, to the Kirk Klingon son thing. Some of us on this podcast would agree with you, Terry. <laughs> <laughs> Look, I was, you know, this is, this was, it was young, I was a young man, you know. Was, no, no, no. You have, like yeah, look, we always say, and, and, uh, no one has to defend what they love. Right. So, uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, maybe one or two cases, but, um, but let me, let me, let me ask you, what, what do you think it was about Star Trek initially that, you know, and this is the question that people have been asking, you know, for decades now, what is it? You know, why there's an obsession with Star Trek that doesn't happen with a lot of TV shows. Right. You know, and, you know, the people who are, uh, uh, you know, going crazy now is uh, teenagers for Outer Banks. Right. And are obsessed with everything. Right. Five years from now, nobody's going to know what it is. Right. Right. It it, it passes. But Star Trek, it, 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 it remains this iconic series. And even though it changes and evolves, it's still... Here we are, you know, at our age, people much older than us, people younger than us, who are just absolutely obsessed with this show. Yeah. Well, here, you know, it was interesting when I when I first came, uh, something happened to me that I didn't realize, uh, which is strange early on. Um, when I came on to season two of Picard uh, and I was in the writer's room, I, you know, I was in the writer's room with these, these giants. It was Michael Chabon. And uh, Akiva Goldsman uh, and a host of other really brilliant writers, and we all started to pitch ideas. All of them were Star Trek ideas, and all of them were different. Like Michael, Michael's Star Trek. What he loves about Star Trek isn't ex- we share elements of it, but it's it's different than mine, and it's different from say Akiva's. Akiva's is very different, and then I have a different. So, and it's something I never really thought of. And I thought it was extraordinary in that room, which is, these are all valid Star Treks. These are all, these are all, 
um, different point. Each there are certain episodes that resonate with next gen with like, you know, we all say inner light. It's not always inner light. Sometimes it's best of both worlds, one and two, yes. you know, and or, or or all good things for that matter, you know, um, times arrow, cause and effect, these kinds of things. So I think it's so many different elements. I, you know, I think there, you know, for me, it's the it's a story of friendship, I think is really interesting. You know, the, the crew and their bonds, um, you know, with these insurmountable odds and coming together, uh, you know, but it's, it is different for everybody. I mean, if you look at just discovery as what discovery is, as a show, it's entirely different from what strange new worlds is the show, entirely different from Picard or next gen or Voyager, Deep space, not even enterprise. I mean, it's interesting to me, you know, I was Brandon's assistant throughout Enterprise, and Enterprise at, at times was a controversial show. I mean, I, you know, from the second the theme song hit onward. Yeah. And yet now there's this kind of renaissance enterprise, people going back and like, hey, we need to look again at this because there were some really great elements of Enterprise that work. That's not something I expected to, to ever hear. So, right. yeah. It's like no. It's like that old story of, uh, you know, trying to describe an elephant from 10 different blindfolded people surrounding it and they reach up and they touch it. Yeah. Everyone is going to give you a different uh, idea of what that elephant is. Yeah. And, and so they're and they're all correct in their own way. So, yeah, and, and, and very smart people can disagree. I mean, I'm always on paper. Nemesis sounded like John Logan, this brilliant playwright. He's done these phenomenal movies and he's going to do Star Trek. You understand why, you know, he would be handed carte blanche to do a Star Trek picture. Right. Um, you know, and of course, it, you know, for most of us, it's a train wreck. Right. But um, but so it, it's true. People come. It's, it's Star Trek's kind of like Rashomon. But, um, you know, one of the things that people always talk about, the reason they gravitate to Star Trek is this idea of optimism about the future. Obviously, in the 60s, things were incredibly tumultuous and um you know, and and certainly in the seventies, in the wake of, of Watergate and Vietnam, but you know, then the nineties, you know, nineties in retrospect were a pretty good time. The wall falls, and um, you know, the economy was booming, and and people were doing well, and yet next generation flourishes, and now when times are arguably worse than they've been any time in recent memory uh, for a multitude of reasons, but obviously first and foremost, uh, the Ukraine and Russian war uh, or action, um, you know, where, what is Star Trek's place in all that? And, you know, there certainly was, I think initially um, a lot of people who felt that, you know, this new, iter these new iterations of Star Trek were not as optimistic or they missed that, part of Star Trek. So how does optimism fit into this whole um, tapestry? I, you know, I don't know, you know, because uh, again, this is part of a, you know, discussion when you get into our writer's room, you talk about it is, you know, the other one, the other thing you hear is Star Trek is at its best when it's a commentary on present day. I, I think all these things are true, but not necessarily absolutes, you know, it is, is Wrath of Khan, which some people would arguably uh, pick as their, one of their favorite Star Trek things, is that an optimistic movie? Kind of, yes, I guess it's about new life. It's about, you know, I, I suppose there, but then I, I would argue, isn't all good drama have always leaned towards optimism in which good and love prevail? So 
I don't know if it's a hard and fast um, rule of Star Trek. It certainly wants to be your North Star. Uh, you know, it, it certainly wants to be. Um, there's a moment, for instance, I can't really talk about, but in season three, the, you know, I'm, I'm cutting right now. And there was a uh, because it is a very it's more of a uh, this uh, it's a serialized. It's a seri- it's very much in the respect of. of of those movies I just spoke of. It's a, it's a Star Trek movie. But there was a moment I was like, this episode has to be about, or at least come to the conclusion of incredible optimism and sense of wonder and, and, and having Picard see a science fiction thing that makes him go, wow. Um, and, and I think that that is an important aspect of of Star Trek, even if even at the end of looking at the Genesis planet at the end of two, it's a beautiful moment because it's about new life and against death and all of those things. So, um, but again, it, it's also, it, I don't know if it's, um, I don't know if it's the all encompassing because I, I, I've also, I, I've seen Star Trek overreach on the optimism where you're just like, all right, okay, we're all perfect. You know, it, it doesn't, and that's not good for drama. And I think Star Trek at its core is just great storytelling with all of these elements. Well, the other word that people use besides optimism, the other key phrase is family. And yeah. you know, Star Trek's about a family. And your analogy is very sound on Star Trek too, but you're right. It's not particularly optimistic, but at the same time, it's about self-sacrifice. You know, right. if the original Star Trek was, you know, sort of a World War II movie, um, you know, with quote unquote men on a mission, obviously it was more than just men, but the phrase men on a mission, you know, it's sort of your buddy who throws himself on the grenade to right. save, you know, and it's that Star Trek too, you know, Spock throws himself on the grenade to save the platoon. Yeah. And, you know, it's, fa- and that's what, you know, family does. And but again, and that, right, that sort of translates into all, I mean, that becomes all of the things we love. It's Avengers Endgame. It's, you know, it's, uh, it's Battlestar Galactica. It's my show, 12 Monkeys. It's like, hopefully you want to just sit in a room with these characters and, and let them do their thing. You know, for me, it would be like to be in a room with Shatner, Nimoy and DeForest Kelly and have them do their thing would have been, I would have killed to have been in that room yeah, to see sure. that. And it's sad. I'm uh, sad. I never have been. Um, so yeah, it's I don't know. It, it's I'm I'm glad that it continues to to inspire and and bring in um, uh, new audiences and younger audiences and 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 people who feel like they don't have a place in the world have find it with Star Trek. Right. You know, part of that I, I found it's it's not only inspirational but it's aspirational in yeah. that these these characters are you know, quote, the uh, the best that humankind has to offer in this situation. Right. And that we hope that we would react in much the same way that they do to problems and uh, and uh, uh, and situations that pop up. And that's part of, I think, what, you know, always drew me to uh, the shows is that we would like to be not only hang around with them, but we would like to be like them. Right. Yeah, absolutely. And we are like them, right? They're, and, and again, it's it's they're not perfect. Kirk's not right. perfect. Picard's not perfect. Um, and exploring those things and their and own their realism, ability, their ability to sift through those personal exactly. troubles that they have, right, and, and sort them out. 
Yeah. Oh, I want to ask you because you were, you know, you're in a very unique perspective on Star Trek because you were there at the end of one era, you know, yeah. and sort of toward the beginning of another era of Star Trek. I mean, if you compare it to comics, it's like golden, silver age, bronze right, age. Yeah. So, uh, <laughs> I know. So, I know Jerry and I talk about this a lot because I, I was a PA on Jerry's first year, Jerry Ryan, who played Seven of Nine. Uh, and it's kind of extraordinary to see her, you know, to be there for her whole story. And, and I mean, we were friends back even then. And now to be directing her, you know, and, and taking her character to where her character goes at the end of season three, it really is, it's that extraordinary thing that is happening now in television of where you get characters who could play, I mean, actors who could play the same character over the course of 30 years mm-hmm. with different, you know, the fact that, uh, James Earl Jones is doing the voice of Darth Vader. <laughs> it's incredible. Whether, however you feel about that show, hearing him say anything is, it still gives you this much of something, you know, well, it's extraordinary. And the yeah. way that they're using technology to do it is also yeah. extraordinary, which is sort of like, wow, what's the next era of Star Trek going to be? You know, are we going to see AI recreations of, you know, I mean, what they're doing with Luke and and, and is in Star Wars, they've taken a very different tack, you know, rather than recasting, they're actually recreating. And it'd be so interesting. I just think as an aside, you know, to have that ability to see Leonard again. You're Nimoy, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, because there's no like, and I look, I love all the other iterations of Spock. That's fantastic. But Nimoy's voice, like there is nothing like Leonard Nimoy. Nothing and at all. So at some point you could get a call, a subspace call from Leonard Nimoy on a Star Trek. I mean, because he wasn't playing Spock. He was Spock. And yeah. that's why you can love the performances of other actors and who are, you know, uh, but he was Spock. He was. And when I say was, you know, not inter- as a personality, you know, uh, anyone who knew him, you know, saw that and, you know, as were his his peers on the show. So I want to ask you, though, because, you know, I talk about this changing era generations. You were there at the end of an era in, you know, when writers were still coming in. In There was a freelance model where people were oh, yeah. still pitching scripts and they'd sit there and every fan in Tulsa, Oklahoma was like, I'm going to, you know, sell a script to Star Trek and. I'm going to become a Star Trek writer and, you know, I'm going to move to Hollywood, and, you know, with dreams and aspirations. And, you know, you yeah. would hear stuff that ranged from the brilliant to the sublime to the absolutely ridiculous. I mean, one of my favorite things when I used to be a journalist and come to the office on Next Gen was the wall, you know, the dry erase board with all the cliches, keeping track of all the pitches, uh, how bet, you know, the ridiculous things like, you know, that were being pitched over and over again. But there were some gems among, you know, all that. Absolutely. That model is obviously gone for a a number of reasons, but you were there at the end of it. The most important one was it's a legal nightmare. Yes. I think Paramount Root, like just the second they could do away with that, that would have that was fantastic, but again, it was a different time. You're doing 22 of those right. a year. Yeah. You need people to come in. You're desperate for someone to come in with a great idea. You don't want them to fail. You want them to come in with the best episode that you can then take off. It was yeah, I was in all those pitches um, and all the signing of legal things, and um, I was also there for lawsuits. I was yeah. there for you know when when the assistant to the showrunner is the assistant to the production essentially. Yeah. 
the legal calls would come in and be like, did you have such and such come in and pitch you this idea? And they're like, yeah, well, you did this. And they're like, but it had, we got to with that in a different way. And it's like, doesn't matter. Um, they came in and pitched it. So it's, it's tricky. It was, it was, it was fascinating. Yeah. People don't understand that, you know, that, you know, a lot of times the studio would settle because it was cheaper that, you know, than the litigation, uh, you know, ultimately it didn't mean there was culpability. And also on the, the side of the people pitched, they don't realize that, you know, just because they pitched something and this, the show did something similar, doesn't mean it was ripped off, you know, and it's kind of like, if you have one good idea, you know, maybe you're yeah. in the wrong business, but um, that it just, it just, you know, people come up with similar ideas. I mean, and, sure. uh, it, 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 but yeah, I can't imagine in the world we live in today that no. working on any show where they, well, you here. also, you don't, you know, we're now, we're now down the, from 13 to 10 episodes, you know, you, you hopefully you've eight with some shows and six with and others shows. is insane. Hopefully you can generate enough story uh, you know, to, to, to not need that. But I, I think certainly in the procedural, which let's just be honest, that's a, it's a procedural, right? Star Trek was a procedural and um, aside from the serialized elements, you needed big ideas, you know, for the high concept pitch was really essential to them back then. So the room now, I mean, during COVID, were you mostly on zoom or were you, Season two, we were mostly on Zoom. Season two was was the height of of COVID. Uh, you know, it was interesting. Um, initially, there were a lot of iterations of, of Picard season two, and some had to be tempered with COVID quite a bit. Uh, uh, once we started to come out of that season three, um, we were we were in the room. I think much to CBS's chagrin, but we were test we were tested three to four times a week, right? Masked, separated, but it's a different. There's a different dynamic when you're in the room than a yep. Zoom. Um, I find Zooms are way they're just more difficult. You can't really read energy or really know if something's landing or not. It, it, it is. It's strange, but grateful for it. I mean, it's Star Trek technology. It's a view screen. You know, it's the kind of yeah. thing that we always imagine one day we can just talk to everybody on screens. But yeah, it was a lot of Zoom, a lot of Zoom in season two. Yeah. Did the, the COVID affect ultimately where you went with season two? The idea to make it contemporary, the idea to use, um, uh, you know, obviously built a lot less sets, a lot more practical locations, um, you know, also cost wise. Um, Right. So one of the things, it's interesting because it, uh, one of the things you see a lot on Twitter is, God, I love the Stargazer stuff. Why didn't they just stay on the Stargazer? Well, here's the truth. The Stargazer wasn't built. They didn't build that in season one. So we, it took, I mean, and, and you're building during COVID. So what we had to do is shoot all the Stargazer, all the Starship stuff at the end of the season. So you could really only do postpone at most an episode's worth of we knew that by season three, I was for sure like, it's got to be a star. We got to be back on a starship if, you know. Um, so it takes a year to build a bridge. And then over COVID with construction, it's a nightmare. So um, so then it was like, well, what do we do? Um, and one of the, you know, when I came in, they had just finished season one is when I when I had come in. And there, uh, the two things I said was, one, I think it should be about Q because it was felt like, 
one of the earliest relationships in Picard's in the career that we have watched. I, I felt like Q would be the right thing. My old friend, forever the boy who with an errant turn of a skeleton key broke the universe in his own heart, no more. You are now unshackled from the past. As I leave, I leave you free. But why does all this matter? Is something going to happen for which I will be required? Must it always have galactic import? Universal stakes, celestial upheaval. Isn't one life enough? You ask me why it matters. It matters to me. You matter to me. Even gods have favorites, Jean-Luc. And you've always been one of mine. Q. Time's almost out. I have one last surprise in store. What's wrong? Nothing. Quite the opposite. And then he said, well, where do, you know, it's very difficult to shoot in Los Angeles and turn it into the 25th century. So uh, I, I, I said, well, we could do Star Trek IV. I mean, we could do a romp uh, back at, back here. And it became certainly less of a romp as it went, as, as it went on. Um, but it felt like a good opportunity to see Cap- the, the world we live in through the lens of Admiral Picard. But it didn't wasn't really like a COVID savings. In fact, in some ways, it cost more money. When you do a gala, you can't have you can't have a hundred people like you used to. You can have twenty five and put yep. them all in the same shot. Yep. And then one extra in that pool tests positive, and then you got to go to the next pool, and it's just it, it's brutal. And it happened. Over yeah. and over and over. Yeah. No, we had we had the same thing, and it's it's not it's not easy. So I want to ask you because people talk about this being the age of IP, and um, you know everything has to be based on IP. But you know it's so interesting your whole experience with Twelve Monkeys. It's never been about if; it's always been when. We didn't see it coming. About four years from now, most of the human race is going to be wiped out. You think you're from the future? Our only option is to stop it from ever happening in the first place. Why did you come for me? You gave me this mission. You're going to change the world, Mr. Cole. We know that it's because of a man named Leland Frost. We find him, I kill him. That's it. What do I do that is so monumental that the laws of physics are broken? I need her. I can't do this alone. I don't know what I believe. I remember meeting you in 1987, and you looked exactly the same. How is that possible? How is that possible? I told you, you can't just kill someone. He's already dead. Everybody is already dead. 
You are already dead! You ready to make history? Or I'll make it. How yeah. even then, and this is, you know, a couple of years now, you know, you have this great original pitch that you go to the studio with and they say, oh, this is great. Let's marry it to an IP. Kind of. Yeah, that's well. I, so I, I I wrote with my my writing partner at the time, Travis Fickett, uh, this pilot called Splinter, which shared a lot of the elements of 12 Monkeys. It was about a distant future time travel thing going back to stop this plague that decimated it. And um, we got a manager. Manager was like, you should try and sell this. This is a great script. And then it ended up in the hands of Atlas, which owned the rights of 12 Monkeys. And they they, they said, you know, we've been trying to turn 12 Monkeys into a, sh a show, but we've never cracked it. Feels like you've kind of cracked it here. And um, at the time, Travis and I were like, I don't know if that's a good idea. It's because we weren't really doing Terry Gilliam's 12 Monkeys. It was much more of a thriller. Uh, it was leaning in to less into the surreal aspects of that idea and more into the more like grounded, like ours was, our, our, it was going to be a show of time travel war, which is what it was. It was a multiple time travelers are trying to, with different agendas are doing different things, but it was just at the birth of IP. And it was, you're going to have a better time of selling this if it is 12 monkeys. Um, and so we said, okay. And, and there was some, so it wasn't a difficult rewrite to, to, to do it. And then um, it got us a ton of meetings and it never would get off the ground. Um, it in fact, I think we pitched it to the sci-fi channel three times. We were in the, those main offices and they're like, no, no, no. Then finally a new sort of regime came in and they're like, why are we not making this? This is battle time travel with the Battlestar Galactica tone. Let's do that. Um, but it wasn't a slam, it wasn't a slam dunk, even with the IP. Um, but it was certainly right at the beginning of an IP is going to get you in the door, whereas an original is not, which is still pretty much the case in, as I see it. Right. Yeah, because you ended up, um, you know, after um, 12 Monkeys, you... you as as our our co-host Ashley Miller will say, consulting producer is the greatest gig in in uh, in Hollywood because you get paid, but you don't have to show up every day, and uh, nobody has to listen to you. But uh, so I, you you worked on Night Flyers. Will you be gone a long time? Yeah, we're going farther than anyone's ever gone. Why does it have to be you? Because I'm the one who found it. Try and catch me. Come on. Our world is dying, but maybe we can save our families. Save our home. The night flyer is our only chance. And that's what scares me. Ready to break orbit. Systems ready, sir. Waited my whole life for this. There was a malfunction during the launch. Three men are down. It wasn't an accident. This mission faces a threat you do not understand. That was no malfunction. It wanted me. Shut it down. I can't get control back. Our friends are dying. There is something wrong with this ship.
and um, oh, night flyers, you know, yeah. which was at the time they had such high hopes for, like George R. R. Martin, yeah, Game of Thrones. This is going to be the sci-fi Game of Thrones, and and for sci-fi they spent a lot of money on it. But what was that experience like for you? Uh, limited. I, I, I they, um, I had just finished Twelve Monkeys, and um, you know, uh, figure out how to. You know, the, the, the studio and the network were felt felt as though that show could use uh, some help, which is always a deeply uncomfortable situation, right? Because you're brought in, they're like, we've got a, someone who's going to help you, or or in their eyes, you know, fix what you've done, and and I don't, it's not my show, I don't, I don't want to do that to anyone, but you have to be. Like you're paid to be honest about what you think the show could be or how it could be different or at least meet some of the expectations that the studio and the network want. Um, and so it's, it, it, it's a tough thing. Um, to, it's, a, it's a tough thing to do. Uh, so really, I came in and, uh, they, you know, it's, it's late in the game. There's, it's not like you can't go back. They're like, we're shooting we're shooting in two weeks in Ireland and everything's already bought. So get, whatever notes you can give can't really affect that. And you're like, well, I don't know. <laughs> that's the pilot. That's the first episode. That's where, that's where you would make your changes. So I, I came in and just helped out uh, uh, with a, with a, with a script and some of the direction, but it, it ultimately, I, uh, creatively, I, I thought the show should be a, different than what it ended up being. And that's no shade as to what it ended up being because uh, that was, had a very distinct point of view. But I would just, it was a different, is a different thing. But it, it's, it's, a, it's a really tough position to be in because you want to help everybody. Uh, you want to help the producers. You want to help the showrunner creator who, who has this vision in their head of what, what it is. And you want to help the studio and the network. And they all don't agree. And yeah. they're all kind of talking to you and you're trying to... Um, find a happy medium. And it's very, it's a difficult thing. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I want to, you know, they say you learn as much from your failures as your successes. Now, this wasn't your failure, but you were part of a show uh, in a small way uh, that was a big, uh, not quite super train level disaster, but close, Terra Nova. The eyes of the world are on Hope Plaza today. Pilgrimage prepares to depart for Terra Nova. I won't go without Dad. Go with your brother. He will find a way. The world you left behind fell victim to greed, war. Welcome to Terra Nova, folks. Welcome home. We're starting over as family. Which was the big Jurassic Park, <laughs> you know, Fox. You're you're getting to, yeah. No, yeah. no, I mean, because again, I think these are, you know, you're, you're running your own shows now. And yeah, I think yeah. that these are things you can. By the way, know, one of the most educational experiences in my entire career. It was my first job. 
it, it was my first job. Yeah, what's your your question? So the question is, why, what why you learn, what, what's your takeaway from something like? I mean, this is a show that went through multiple showrunners, right? And then Brandon comes on, and you know, is sort of like after they spent all their money and all their stuff, and you have some huge producers like Spielberg, yeah. um, a, a, you know, enormous expectations from Fox, you know. But at, at that point, kind of the damage is done. It's sort of like this tainted thing. It's like, um, but. Um, you know, so what do you what what are you what is your takeaway from something like that, or is it, or is it just like uh, okay, uh, look, well that goes that that's all about yeah. My takeaway is is singular vision is important. Singular vision is the key to either a great success or a great failure, right? In this case, um, there were so many visions of, but no one was no one could be like it's this. So it started out as a, as a spec script, I believe, from Kelly Marcel, the original writer. And it was rewritten by uh, Craig Silverstein, who, uh, who, who I worked with uh, on Nikita, who's brilliant. Uh, and he, he came in and sort of reinvented it more uh, as a thriller. And, uh, but his show, Nikita, had been greenlit. And he was like, I'm going to go reboot that to great success. Um, so now Fox had this thing where... We got a thing with dinosaurs, sci-fi. It's kind of cool. We kind of like it. We don't quite get it. Why don't we get Spielberg, who we have an overall deal with, and we got Chernin, and this is, we'll just turn this into a giant, giant prestige project. But we need a showrunner. <laughs> you know? And so Brandon, Brandon came in um, with David Fury, and it was, it's one of those things like- Because they had just done 24 together for Fox. We had, yeah, and I, I, was, I was an assistant on 24 for Brandon. I just- uh, 12 Monkeys just started going out and we were getting a ton of meetings on that. And they had read that and I'm like, you should come be on staff with uh, my writing, Travis Fickett. Um, but it's one of those things where like, they announced it at Upfronts and they're like, where you gotta go. And then the question is, but what is the show? We've got an interesting pilot that's going to be rewritten, but what is the show? So um, I think in that case, I think the studio, I think the network, um, I think all the producers had a kind of vague vision of what they thought it was. Um, and uh, one of the difficult positions for a showrunner to get into is doing the thing that I just talked about as a consulting producer is you, you can't say yes to everyone. And so at, at some point you're going to make a decision and you're going to piss somebody off. Um, in this case, all of the people are tremendously powerful people. You're going to not take a note from Steven Spielberg on a call. You're not going to not take a note from Peter Turner. You're not going to take a note from the studio he's paying for or the network who is depending on this to launch their thing. And so you can, and there were aspects of the show's engine that were just flawed. Like there was problems in the DNA of the show. You know, it was, uh, it, it, it wanted to be a Western. But, you know, as a show, just for people who've never seen it, um, there's a ecological disaster in the future, and they use time travel to come back and settle in the past, uh, in the, the, the age of the dinosaurs, uh, to, as the rebirth of humanity. Now, let's take out all the time travel questions that just that inherently asks that nobody wanted to really answer, which is like, wait, where? what happened to those people? Did they go create a rocket and leave or they did they just die what nobody wanted to well, let's not get into the time travel of it but so um 
it's hard. You know, we went through multiple writing staffs, multiple POV, POVs as to what the show could have been. Um, everyone tried really hard. Like this, this was not a thing where anything was like whiffed. Um, it was nobody could really agree as to what the show was. I think towards the end, we found a tone, but it was, you know, too late. By yeah. the way, they canceled that show. Um, they would have killed to have that show because the rate, by the time those rate, they, they were like, well, the ratings are here. It was like a two point, whatever, which is now a giant right. monster hit. Um, but even by the time the next season had started, those numbers still would have, would have equaled a, a hit. So, but I think at that point, there was such fatigue in the show, multiple writing staffs, creative differences that it, it didn't, it had soured. Yeah. Now I'm going to ask you a question. Brandon's going to hate me for asking this, but you know, I say this with love. <laughs> so do you believe in crunchy snacks in your writer's room? Is it okay? <laughs> uh, <laughs> did Brandon come on and say no crunchy snacks? No, no. It's crunch? funny because, uh, you know, look, he was a huge, huge supporter of my book, 50 year mission. I mean, it was, he, yeah. and, you know, look, it's pretty honest. And, 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 and he said, the only thing, that I, I, that I was just talking upset. about this with David Goodman. I had dinner with David Goodman. We were talking about all this. He's like, I said some stuff I probably shouldn't have said. <laughs> he said the only thing that upset him was, uh, you know, I got, somebody had talked about how he wouldn't allow crunchy snacks in the writer's room and it would drive him crazy. And that he put a moratorium on it. You couldn't have potato chips and, and then new writers would come in and they'd be sent out of the writer's room because uh, their, their, their food was too crunchy. And my, my wife, it's funny because that stuff bothers her too. She says, I don't know why anybody would be upset about that. So that was the only thing Brandon ever, he was like. That's hilarious. He's like, why did you put that in there? <laughs> uh, look, I mean, writer's rooms can be super um, distracting. I mean, I mean, super intense, right? And stressful, especially if it's like, I've got two days to break a story and you're already feeling that stress. And if a crunch is gonna set you off and distract you, I kinda get it, I kinda get it. I've never banned it, but I, I'm trying, I can't really remember somebody crunching so loud that I had to kick them out. But I actually kind of remember a couple of people on Star Trek who did crunch kind of loud, so I kind of get it. But then again, if a crunch is going to distract you so much that you can't do your job, Maybe you should try and find another job. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. The key Look. is to hire writers who have etiquette, who don't eat crunchy <laughs> food. You got to ask them on the job interview. I okay. So. It's a showrunner. That is a high stress job. That is, sure. you know, it's funny because one, one of my good friends is, uh, is, is now a showrunner who, who is a, a writer on 12 Monkeys and, and, and Picard. And he's like, oh, I, I, I get it now. It's not just that you have to be on for the writer's room. You have to be on for the studio, the network, production, post-production, the finance, blah, blah, blah. I'm like, yeah. So there's, it, it's, um, I think showrunner training is probably uh, important. But, the, you know. You're yeah, under- but you know what, though? The, I mean, the, look, the WGA showrunners program, it was great. It's great. Yeah. Uh, but it's still, you know, it's just like, you, you know, film school. They teach you film. But you either have it or you don't. You can't really teach it, right? And it's yeah. the same thing with the show, showrunners training program. It's a super great tool to have. And but if anything, it's more about like meeting people and and being able to pick their brain about you know their experiences. But you know when you actually push comes to shove, you know and everybody's experience is different too. It's either in your DNA. 
I'm just, I'm just saying I, I haven't banned it. I don't not get it. <laughs> okay so enough about the crunching snacks so you you know be, the first time you wrote for the next generation characters was for a comic book you did uh um what was it hive i think hive, for uh hive, right. idw how how was that i mean that must have been fun for you because it was you know the first time you were really writing these characters yeah i mean and, and that was with brandon um I, I brandon had a relationship i think with that comic book company and um he said, said they wanted to do um, a Star Trek comic. He said, do you have any ideas? And um, I said, well, I, ha I had this notion, which was what if you started, you know, 400 years in the future with Locutus sitting on a Borg throne as the Borg king, and there are no more worlds left to assimilate. At some point, the Borg won, they got Locutus back, and now he's having second thoughts. And he's like... That sounds great. What happens? I'm like, I have no idea. <laughs> but I, but I, but I loved the the image of that as like the first like uh, you know in in my dream it was like this beautiful painted like old you know decrepit the cutest and then it became you know Brandon's love of time travel is is the same as mine. Uh, it became a, a time travel story, but it was uh, I mean it was a thrill. I mean to do it with Brandon and to. Uh, have those pages come back with, uh, you know, Borg Queen and, you know, and just to, to tell another, uh, tell a next gen story was, 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 in, was really fun. In uh, the third season of Picard, um, obviously there are all the uh, demands on your time as a showrunner and all the decisions that have to be made. There's a lot going on. It's a lot of time to stop and smell the roses, but I wonder, was there ever a point where you sort of stopped and smelled the, you know, sort of pinch me moments where it's like, you know, having been a fan of Next Generation, having come up through the ranks at Voyager and Enterprise and sold your first script uh, on that on that show and Star Trek being such a, a part of your formative life in this business yeah. to then be doing what you were doing, you know, on a certain set, perhaps, um, you know, with these <laughs> actors. Yeah. <laughs> so what, you know, what were, did you ever have that moment or uh, was life uh, passing mean, you by too fast? No, no, you, you had them all the time. And, and, and uh, the life is definitely, like there was one moment in particular, um, which I will, I'll come back on and I'll talk about after season three <laughs> airs where, um, I mean, it's, 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 it's all the, it, uh, <laughs> It's a it's a legendary moment. Let's just say, you know, and and uh, I will say they're all reunited, um, and there's some things going on. And and um, I, I remember turning to my assistant saying, "Right now, I should be in tears, but I'm too fucking stressed mm. to get this right because I don't want to fuck it up." Uh, that that's the key. Uh, the moments really hit in post. When now I can watch that moment and it's not um, Patrick, Frakes, LeVar, you know, it, and Gates and Marina and Michael, it's Picard and Riker and, and Jordy and the music is up. And you know, one of the things I've been spending a lot of time on right now is uh, the music is very much uh, in the spirit of Goldsmith and Horner. Mm. Um, in fact, you know, it's so much so that we, we're going to probably put out a thing saying this is 
if they were still alive, the spirit of this is what the score for season three is, is that big cinematic. I mean, we're going back to like how they mix Goldsmith with a little bit more verb and it's a little better. And so um, when you see those moments with score, then that hits, you're like, oh my God, we, we did this. Um, but it, it is really hard. And, and uh, I think there are, funny enough, there are moments that are, because it's not, there are some people who come back from Star Trek in this season that aren't just the next gen cast. I mean, there's one character who it, uh, from who is in next gen who I was like, I really want this character to come back. Uh, and when they did, that was weirdly more thrilling than everything else in totality. But yeah, well, Joe little... Piscopo hasn't worked in a long time, so that's I, great I, that you I could get him back. I had to have him. But... <laughs> <laughs> now that's. Uh, but yeah, it, it was that. It was that. But I would say mostly in post is when you get the the chills. Well, that's when you can take a breath too. I mean, it's so yes. much different being on set when the yes, <laughs> you know, you're right. you're there with you know all the above the line, and this is not just Patrick, you know, uh, but right. all you know, all of them to a certain extent. So, um, did you find that this was a a a tough sell? Because certainly, I think that regardless of whatever people. Uh, thought of the first season, certainly Nepenthe seemed to resonate with the fans, which was uh, Frakes and Marina uh, back. And that seemed to be a very well-liked episode. So was this a hard sell to say, let's get the band back together. They haven't been around since Nemesis and there's so much love for these characters. And this is what the fans really want to see, which is, you know, Picard reunited and feel so good. Um, It wasn't a hard sell to, uh, anyone creatively, I mean, certainly uh, all of the producers were like, we, if they wanted to do that from the beginning. Um, and e even certainly like when we sat down with Patrick for the first time, it's like, no, this absolutely feels like what we should do. Um, and uh, Patrick had a, a key idea, which was uh, an element of the story uh, that, that was, was absolutely um, pivotal to the focus of it. Um, I think probably it's a bit more difficult to go to the studio and say, great, we're doing this. We need to make deals now with mm -hmm. all of these legacy characters and financially, what can we afford? And what does that mean for some of the new cast? I think that was probably the hardest mm -hmm. thing is that we just don't have infinite cash to to pay or or runtime you know what i mean to mm -hmm. to spend time to do justice to characters so uh i think that was harder to to do than uh than the creative yeah people don't really seem to get that you know obviously and i guess it's okay that the general audience doesn't understand how budget works but i mean you look at you know even with mike uh brian's original pitch for Discovery. He saw it as an anthology series where each year it would be a totally yeah. different show. And that went out the window immediately because of cost, you know, yeah. just because if you're going to build these sets, you got to amortize them over multiple years. And so, uh, I mean, it, it's amazing that, you know, Picard could reinvent itself and, and be affordable. And then to have, you know, all these casts who, you know, particularly Brent, who is a very savvy negotiator in his team, you know, to, 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 uh, to get them all back is, is not, uh, you know, it's not, a, uh, it's a it very difficult 
challenge. And right. And, 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 you, and again, you're on a time clock too, which is, I need to know if I can, if, do I have everybody? Cause that's going to dictate yeah. what the story is. Right. Um, and for how many and when, and, 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 and in that case, you have also, you have people, you know, Marina lives in London, you know, it's not easy to have Marina just yeah. pack up and leave. Uh, so we need to do it right. Uh, yeah. so all those aspects of it are incredibly challenging. And then, this, and then the other aspect of it is, it's, you know, in a weird way, you see, you mentioned anthology, you know, weirdly Picard has become kind of an anthology and season one is very different is, is, uh, from season two, you know, from Michael's vision to, to, to Akiva's deep dive into deconstructing Captain Picard to this, to season three is, is, is different from all of, from those two. Um, and I think that's it. All of them though, with the focus of Picard now, um, dealing with some uh, emotional aspect of his life that's important. Well, what people don't realize, it's not like you, can, you can't you can write Scotty and then suddenly change him to Welshie because you didn't get doing. Well, you know, it's like you can't <laughs> yeah. suddenly change. I love that story. I heard that. <laughs> um, so, I, I, you know, I got to ask you, because, you know, Patrick has been very clear that, you know, he's done. This is his farewell. I mean, he's not a young man. He, he's not, you know, 92 and like running marathons like Shatner. So, um my my question is, is there a backdoor pilot in this show? Is there a way to continue this without Patrick? Is that something that's even being, you know, in the uh, back of your mind? Uh, 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 <laughs> um, you know, uh, the, I guess if this was a printed interview, you'd say the showrunner smiled. Devilishly. <laughs> yeah. Uh, okay. Uh, look, I, 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 Ter- I Terry did not answer cagely. Exactly. I I think to me, this is a period of time in, in, in the Star Trek universe that I would love to spend more time with. I think um, there's nothing less than um, 30 legacy characters across these uh, uh, deep space nine forger next gen that you would love to check in and see. I mean, we we can't get to them all in season three. You know, we don't get to miles O'Brien, you know, right. I'd love to get to Miles O'Brien. I know. <laughs> um, there are people, though, you're like, well, what? Like, if I could say one name to you right now that comes back and you're like, oh, my God, I really want to know what happens. And you're going to find out. Uh, so I would love nothing more than to stay in the sort of 20, it's like 2401, I believe is the year, is, is to tell more Star Trek stories mm-hmm. in, in, in this universe. And so that's all I will say. But let me ask you this, because you're right. There has been over the last couple of years. I feel like not interrupt. I feel like this is in a weird way. It's kind of feels like the present day of Star Trek to me, the Mm -hmm. card universe. Like that's where we left off. Mm -hmm. Um, And it's awesome that, you know, Discovery jumps back and Stranger Worlds jumps back and uh, and then Discovery jumps forward and tells that. But to me, there's something very now still about that universe. Um, which we, you know, and, and the fallout of things from like, this, you know, there's quite a bit of in season three, the fallout of uh, the Dominion War that is important in, in the plot that is so rich for exploration. So I, sorry, I cut you off. I just want. No, to- no, not at all. I, I want to hear you talk. I can hear yeah. myself talk anytime. <laughs> uh, so my, my question, uh, though, is you talked a lot about mining these this rich tapestry of, of legacy characters. Totally understandable. And obviously, um you know, it's very exciting what you're doing in season three. The, the question is, you know, Star Trek has always been about boldly going, is there a show 
because it seems that current Star Trek is mostly about mining these le- beloved legacy characters. But, you know, is there a show, do you think, in your future where, you know, it's the future of Star Trek with completely new characters, you know, completely new Star Trek? I mean, that was always the challenge that I guess that, that Rick had, you know, when he was doing his shows was kind of like, how much do you spin off? From the original, you know, like Next Generation, they, oh, let's bring Worf over to Deep Space Nine. And then eventually, oh, we got to introduce the Borg on Voyager. You know, Enterprise, we're going to go back. But is there a place for something new? And in this world of IP driving everything, where you got to bring back Boba Fett, you got to bring back Obi-Wan, you got to, you know, because you don't have the marketing money to just introduce a completely new concept. You have to have right. those characters to sell something. Is there a world in which there's a Star Trek where we don't, where it's like, well, it's I, entirely I, I, I believe, I mean, I think that certainly that is what Alex is doing. Uh, you know, I think in uh, discovery is now distant future and it has no ties really to any of those legacy characters. I, I know they're working on a, um, a section 31 um, idea that is also doesn't have ties and there's another one as well. So I, I think absolutely. I think Star Trek is infinite. I think you can do, I mean, any one of these uh, could, could not necessarily have a tie to a legacy character. And I think the, um, when I, when I was talking about continuing to tell stories in this, in this time period, hmm, how do I say it? The, season three is very much a pass of the passing of the torch from one generation to the next. You do get like I, I I love the moment where old bones is walking around the enterprise with data. I love it. It's like it's mm-hmm. a passing of the torch that feels right. I love when Spock came on and had that that arc with Sarek and Picard. Like it feels it it that tapestry feels much richer to me when that can happen. So I think there are opportunities to tell the story of the next generation that crosses with the last because that's the universe right that's mm-hmm. that's the world i think I but i would also pay you a compliment because i think that that scene where, where um q and picard say goodbye to each other is a wonderful scene yeah um and uh you know very it really felt like it had a place in a, all good things you know i mean it, it felt redolent to that it was just a really sentimental and beautifully written scene well, thank you. I appreciate it. that's all Akiva. You know, uh, Akiva very much had um, the psychological journey of Picard and, and that, and and that, in those final moments, the "you matter" moment in uh, in Q. That that is that is very much right from Akiva's heart. You know, and uh, it uh, it resonates, and it's the thing that I keep hearing the most about season two. I mean, there's lots of you know, I get. You can't read the internet, Terry. You should know, know that by now. You've been doing I, this long I, enough. I, I know. I, I can't. There's just. Uh, I, it's. I, I've actually evolved. I've. I've been pretty good. Um, <laughs> um, but the. Um, the. The. The thing that keeps coming back is how much that moment meant to so many people. And while that was, I mean, certainly the thing we planned from the beginning was 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 you know a kind of quasi love story about a god and and a and a mortal and in it being his favorite mortal i mean i think there's something really special about it but that moment is definitely uh akiva's it, it's it's really amazing because i remember when we were younger and i'm sure you remember this it's like the idea of star trek ever coming back you know watching it, it you know the cartoon came and then there was like the 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 the, the you know the show and then when the motion picture opened it was like this amazing thing you know and then you see a show like Battlestar Galactica which lasted like 
barely a year in 1978. And then like, well, that's the last of that. And then, you know, you see it come back and be this big franchise. And then after Nemesis, who would have ever thought that there was a future for these characters? And now to see you taking them and giving them, you know, new life. I mean, it's, it's really, it's really remarkable. It just goes to show, you know, as Bill Goldman said, nobody knows anything because. Right. No, look, again, and you go back to like, what are the moments that gave you? I mean, that was the thing that was my pitch was say what you want about Nemesis, bad or good, uh, good or bad. Uh, it, it didn't feel like the end of those of those characters. It, if they needed a send off, uh, and that was that was the core pitch to Patrick and and to all of them. I called every one of them and I said, "I want to talk about your characters, where you think their characters are, and I want to send you all off the way that." Um, but certainly for me, for Star Trek Six, I thought it was a pretty great send off for for the original crew. Now I'm going to ask you a question that you're not going to want to answer, but I'm going to ask you anyway because you're okay. very <laughs> candid. Um, unlike when the show was in production back in the day, and even Enterprise, where really Bakula was the only one that you had to really treat with kid, kid gloves. Um, you know, when you they were doing Next Generation, other than Patrick, it didn't really matter what the cast thought, right? You know, yeah. when you hear them now in retrospect talking about, oh, I didn't get enough to do and I did yeah. this and I did that. This is different. You know, now this whole thing hinges on the, the cast coming back. They're further along. You know, obviously there's certain financial demands. Certainly, you know, the only reason Patrick did this was because he was sold creatively. But now you have all these guys yeah. who have to kind of be sold creatively. So how is that dance for you as a, as a showrunner? You know, in uh, terms- I, I gotta tell you, it was, it was great. Uh, Cause I, I didn't want to make anything that they didn't want to make. You know, I, 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 the last thing, you know, they all have big things to do. We all meet them. We find out where they are now. And, and it's some of those, those, uh, those answers as to what they're doing now are unexpected. At the Royale. Yeah. No? <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's not a spoiler? Is that the Royale? But so I wanted them to be happy and have input. And and, and uh, I never wanted them to feel like, you know, they've lived with these characters. They go to the conventions. They know the stories that matter to these people. Um, you know, uh, Gates was, you know, I, I wanted to make sure that Crusher really had a strong very strong story. I mean, I, I, like there was a fascinating, that's a fascinating character who let her son go off into the universe, uh, who had uh, once had a romantic relationship with Captain Picard and, and you know, where are they now? Uh, to LeVar, you, you know, like sitting with LeVar and being like, here's what I think is going to happen to Jordy. And like, Jordy, LeVar made me cry. Like there was a moment when I, I pitched it and he, he was so emotional that I got emotional. I'm like, Okay, this is one of those cool moments. Same thing with Michael and Marina and Jonathan. I mean, Jonathan was working on season two uh, uh, with uh, with me, and I said, "Hey, I, I have this idea. I want to tell you about Riker, and it's a lot of Riker." He's like, "You want me to act?" I'm like, you're, <laughs> "He's very reluctant you're, to do anything in cameos. You're <laughs> huge. Like, I mean, Riker is is the." There's, you're going to walk away from season three. I mean, like my, Riker is he there's anyway. So um, they had to be happy or else I, I wouldn't have felt good, you know? And so that was the same thing. And Brent, we had, had many discussions with Brent 
uh, about it. And, and, and all of them brought really great ideas to it. That's you know, great. there wasn't like a stinker in the bunch. It was, it was great. John is so self-deprecating about his acting and it's so unwarranted. He's good. He's really good. But boy, he just, you know, since he's been doing the directing, he feels he's so rusty with his acting and it's so he's, funny. Uh, he is fantastic. In season yeah. three. Um, and, you know, we, we, we wrote to Jonathan. So he, he has, he has that sparkle in his eye, you know, uh, throughout the whole, the whole thing. Right. No, that's, that's, that's great. And uh, when, uh, when does season three uh, uh, debut? I don't know. That that's above my pay grade. I I do not know. Sometime in the future, then. So I'm I, so I'm led to believe. Yes. <laughs> so you know, it all goes back to you starting on Enterprise. Um, you know, your first script. What you know? Where do you feel that show? In in the pantheon, when you look back, you know what did that show do right in your mind? What did you do wrong? And obviously, it's a very special show because it it kind of gave you your start in the business in a way. Um, yeah, yeah, I sold my first stories, and they they named the planet system after me, which is funny because that that planet's mentioned in season three, and people are like, "You named a planet?" I'm like, "I didn't name the planet." David Goodman and Chris Black named it out on Enterprise. I'm jealous because Goodman only named Edith Keeler's asshole landlord after me. Oh, <laughs> really? Uh, yeah, in the, in the autobiography of Captain Kirk. Captain Kirk, yeah. He was really That's happy. Hilarious. He, said, he said, Mark, I, I named this great character after you. It's Edith Keeler's asshole landlord. I'm like, thanks, David. That's a real... You know what? It was a key aspect of Edith Keeler's life, and I, I think it's a, I approve. Um, thanks. Um, Enterprise, you know, it's funny. I think back on, um, in the first thing Enterprise people always talk about is the theme song. And I was there for the whole, the whole song. From U2 to Patch Adams. And I got to tell you, the, uh, and I, I have it on a VHS somewhere. The original cut to U2's Beautiful Day of that was fucking great. And it really did feel aspirational and it gave a different vibe to it uh how they got to the other thing is is a story that's been well told by people more informed than, than i am but it i will say that beautiful day was pretty great um you know i think it, it there's something really cool about it being the submarine in space like the first time they go out there uh i think maybe you could argue they got to things like transporters a little too soon. They got to this, that, and the other thing. But I think those also it comes down to budget, which is like, I need to get them on a planet. I can't yeah. get them in a shuttle every time. I can't burn this money. Um, they got to be. <laughs> so let's yeah. just do it. But, you know, you watch you watch the first episode now, and, and it's of a different time. You know, would you be doing the decontamination room rubdowns in today's world? You I don't definitely yeah. would not. <laughs> yeah. I, uh, I don't think so um i think even then we were like i don't all right um but i think you know look i mean it's scott back i mean there's a lot of, there's a lot of interesting things uh, I, you know i think connor and dominic were fantastic i think uh john billingsley was was really really fucking good i think it's probably the right thing for that period of time um and they certainly pushed the envelope by the end you know, of track and mirror universes. And I remember when they built that original series bridge and it's all we did was hang out down there. You know, I think they, they did, uh, I think their heart was always in the right place. Yeah. 
And do you think that obviously Voyager is going through a bit of a renaissance now, more than a renaissance? It's obviously yeah. proved. Yeah. Uh, and and do you do you and, and and a lot of people are talking about how much obviously they miss the Deep Space Nine characters. Yeah. Um, that's a little different because you know the question is, will Avery, you know, be ever be willing to go in front of the camera again? You know, obviously Renee passing, it's yeah. a little different. But what about what's you think there's a future for the Enterprise characters at all, or has that ship sailed, so to speak? I think there's absolutely no, I think you could, there's no question you could bring, you could bring those characters in. I mean, I think, look, I think that's the beauty of Star Trek is it's science fiction. It's fine, yeah. die and come back. You know, it's okay. If the story is good and, and it's good for the character, then th that's great. I think, you know, certainly trip, you know, you'd want to, I wouldn't want to do an enterprise thing without trip, you know, you got to bring them back. I don't know how. But you'd have to. Um, it's. Uh, I, I think all of the all of these things in Star Trek are are viable um, options. What about for you? You've done a lot of genre in your career. Um, you know, done action, obviously with MacGyver and stuff. What What would you What would you like to be five five years from now? What would you like to be doing? You know, what do you see? You 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 you've got to work on kind of your dream project in the sense of you know re rebooting or revisiting Star Trek. You know, which is obviously and you know. Look, I love Star Trek. I, I'd stay at Star Trek as long as I could. I think there's so many. Star, Star Trek is, is your way into every kind of story. It's, it can be a romance. It can be a Western. It can be a spy thriller. It can be a, a space opera. It can be space magic. It can, you know what I mean? So it's, it's hard to, um, especially if you have the craving for, science fiction and fantasy like that you want to do and time travel, there's no better uh, universe for that. So when are you going to bring in the uh, DeLorean time travel uh, into <laughs> Star Trek? That's I, I, uh, I, yeah, I mean, I look, I'll always do a time. I, I, I love time travel. So time travel will always play a part in stuff that I do, but yeah. I think you just want to beat Brandon's record to be on Star Trek the longest amount of time. <laughs> it has nothing to do with loving it. It's just like, well, if he was on for what, 23 years? Right, I got to go one more than Brandon. That's yeah. the goal. Yeah. You have to beat your mentors. No. You, uh, you ever compare notes? Because obviously he's, you know, having much success on the Orville and here you are in Star Trek. I'm sure you guys. Uh, um, yes. I mean, certainly with the, you know, I mean, we, we, we talked when they announced the the uh, when when I was on and and the next gen and we talked about uh, you know his experiences and Brandon's been so unbelievably supportive. That's uh, great. It, it's uh, it, it it's terrific. So I I I'm looking forward to to seeing what he thinks. Oh, that's fantastic. The learner has become the master. So um, uh, I got I got to say. Um, to everyone, obviously, it was a pleasure having you on the show, and um, we're very excited about you know uh, whether you love or, or 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 maybe didn't feel the love. Um, you know, Terry is you know going to bring a whole new season of Picard. Very exciting stuff, which you've told us a little bit about here. You know, the cast is uh, of the beloved cast of Next Generation uh, is uh, is is returning. Um, a lot of other surprises and things that. Um, Terry's alluded to or, or uh, as well. So hopefully you'll check that out whenever it debuts. Um, and, and we hope that you'll return with us when everything is revealed so that we can uh, 
uh, look back on that. And I look forward to the fallout of this podcast from. Oh, uh, God, why you don't. It's you all say this. <laughs> uh, you were very vague. You were very vague. Okay, good, good, good. Yeah, and you know, when in doubt, just blame us. Okay, they were very oh, mean. I, they got me here on false. They pretenses. cornered me. I had no idea I was going to be on a podcast. And <laughs> there, was, there was a bear on my ring. Yeah, I was yeah. distracted. What can I do? Yeah. Yeah. But anyway, well, look, this is great. And we're really looking forward to it. Thank you so season. much. I love you. I love this show, guys. And keep well, going. thank you. We, thank we, you. we appreciate it. And uh, really, really great talking to you. It's just such a, you have such a fabulous story about, you know, sort of how you started on Star Trek and, you know, to go from, you know, uh, uh, you know, to, to make that journey. I mean, that's, it's, it's the Star Trek, it's the aspirational Star Trek journey. So um, anyway, yeah. um, and, and so many great shows. So uh, we thank you. It's great having you, you on the show and thank we'll you so much. see you again to do the, the, the post-show wrap up uh, when it's all, uh, when yeah, it's or all pre-launch over. or after you've seen or, some trailers or whatever. Yeah, yeah. Or you can come and, and do our episode when we defend Star Trek five against all the haters, you can come join us. Right. I, you know what? I would love to be a part of that. Excellent. There you go. I would love to be a part of that because uh, I, you know, I was, I mean, motion picture is the one that I spend the most time defending. Um, uh, Me too. There, there <laughs> I, I, I think you might have an intimate look at that. I, I, you know, it's funny. The old, I just want to say one thing. The older I get, the more I watch motion picture, the more I have this unbelievable deep appreciation that it exists. And if you say like, what's a Star Trek you'd like to do? That's a Star Trek. I mean, this, the idea of this, big high stakes mystery uh it's high science fiction i mean deep like deep science fiction i would love to do a season of star trek like that but again you know i i think people would be like so you want the most boring one i'm like no it's not it's not the most boring one you join person because you don't understand yet yeah, I do think that there, you know, there has been a, a renaissance. You know, we talk about the sort of Voyager being rediscovered, but I've I really seen, or at least maybe I perceive that motion picture has got gone through a critical reevaluation. A lot yeah. of people who saw it in a theater for the first time, thanks to this director's edition, have, yeah. have, look at it in an entirely different way than yeah. they did in the past. You know, this whole idea of the motionless picture and all that stuff. Because it really is a theatrical experience. But again, it goes to that space opera thing where I'm like, look, they're like, well, you just want to watch the ship go through V'ger. I'm like, first of all, yes. Yes. For hours. Second of all, <laughs> listen to that score. That is one of the greatest film scores yep. of Ever all made. time. And that sequence, I don't care if it's eight minutes long, just sit there and listen. Yeah. God forbid you get some beautiful classical music in your brain for a while. It's, anyway. an, exp it's an experience, not a distraction. Absolutely. I totally agree. But and I'm, that's I'm why Picard season three is going to be great. That's you right. Heard Terry. He proved his bona fides. Right, right, right. <laughs> I'll, I'll, I'll come on for Star Trek V because there are, there are elements of Star Trek V that are worth defending. Agreed. Steve Asbell did a, a yeoman's job defending Star Trek VI against uh, the slings and arrows of Mr. Doctorman. And I think we would love to have you join us oh, to defend on. Star Trek V. Really? You, you, you came at Star Trek VI hard? Oh, yeah, Absolutely. you did. Absolutely. Oh, my. Where do you fall with Star Trek VI, Mark? Oh, I love Star Trek VI. Okay, good. All right. Oh, okay. You, you're a liar. <laughs> what, what are you talking about? Uh, what, how am I a liar? You you agreed with uh, a lot of the points I had. I, I did, but I mean, you know, I was supposed to be an impartial judge. Uh-huh. Yeah. I, I've been very clear that I'm. Uh, I admit that Star Trek Six has flaws, but uh, you know, overall, it's my second, well, my third favorite Star Trek movie. 
So. It's all right. We're all friends here. At oh the end my god! Just don't get a start on Star Trek Three. What, what, what are your again. top? What are your top three? Two, one, and and six. Uh, and then four. Well, five, and then maybe three. Probably last. Five before <laughs> five before four. No, four and then five. Yeah, four and five. Okay. Yeah, and then and then probably. And you three. just hate three. Uh, I get it. I, I don't hate it. Don't hate I, it. I, I think it's immensely flawed. Um, oh, but man. and and sacrifices his ship and his son. My God. Eh. Oh, Lord, <laughs> <laughs> you know, people are like, but what about stealing the Enterprise and James Horner's score? Stealing the Enterprise and James Horner's score are both great. Yeah. Nobody's saying they're not. Right. But they're only ten minutes long. Right? No, there's, <laughs> there, there's, there's great. Stuff Thank you going. so much for being. Yeah, with Terry, us. this is this is great, Thanks, and good luck with post. And we can't wait to see uh, season three when it debuts. Um, and, uh, on behalf of, uh, Darren and myself, uh, thanks for joining us for another episode of Inglorious Trexperts. You can follow us on Inglorious Trek on Twitter and Instagram and, uh, Facebook. And we want to thank our producers, Natalie Miscali and Zach Raggetts and Peter Holmstrom, as well as our sound mixer, the great Mark Rivera. And, uh, hopefully we made it easier this week than last week with that vintage Harold Livingston interview at a diner. I don't know what I was thinking. And uh, <laughs> until then, we'll see you next week. Uh, and keep on trekking ingloriously, of course. Thanks, gentlemen. See ya. This show is produced by Dean Devlin and Mark A. Altman and is an Electric Surge Network production.